Those are Vindicator bombers of the Strategic Air Command on routine patrol. Each plane carries two 20-megaton hydrogen bombs designed to detonate over enemy targets. At any given moment, night or day, flights of those airplanes are in the air. Five, four, three, two, one. All groups at fail-safe point. That does it. They've crossed the border. A technical state of war now exists. Welcome to 1964. And as Bob Dylan said back then, the times, they are a-changing. On the pop culture front, you had the British Invasion, the Beatles, James Bond. On the political front, you had all sorts of chaos. You had the assassination of American President John F. Kennedy the year before. You had the Bay of Pigs invasion. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis. You had the beginnings of what would become the Vietnam War. And into this charged atmosphere of Cold War shenanigans and potential nuclear holocaust, we got two movies in 1964 that dealt with this very issue. Join us now as we talk about them here on the Camera Roll Podcast. Gentlemen, there's no fighting in the war room. Hello, my name is Ho Lin, and I run the Camera Roll movie review blog. And this is the Camera Roll Podcast. So today, here to discuss both Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove, I have my friend and fellow filmmaker Peter Makepeace. Hello. Who works as a projectionist at the New People Cinema in San Francisco. I do my best. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So uh, before we dive into this all, um, just thinking about the Cold War in general and nuclear holocaust and all that good stuff. How, how much were you conscious of all that stuff? We're both from similar generations, but growing up in the 70s and 80s, how, how, how cognizant were you of the Cold War skullduggery going on and the potential for nuclear annihilation? Uh, well, in my case, uh, as a kid in the 70s, I was definitely aware of the Cold War and the spy games going on in Vietnam and a lot of um, shenanigans uh, that were happening Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was on TV, and I watched it without, you know, Alec Guinness blew me away. He was awesome. Uh, so I was kind of maybe a little precocious and young for to be steeped in this stuff. But um, the nuclear war aspect, I think I really, it became more prominent in my thinking, uh, I would say, during college in the 80s, early 80s. I went to UC Berkeley, and I was surrounded by a lot of um, political activism, and and um, it may be a little hard to imagine uh, for the kids nowadays, the younger generations, that uh, as a college student, me and I would say most of people my age at that time uh, assumed that we would all die uh, or the, there was a high likelihood or at least 50-50 chance of all of us dying in a nuclear catastrophe caused by um, the superpowers, the U.S. and USSR going to blows using thermonuclear weapons. And so that's kind of where where we were, where I was, um, until the Berlin Wall came down and things changed a lot. And that's another chapter in the Cold War that's a little hard to describe if you didn't live through it. But you actually went to Berlin, so you got to feel a little bit of that vibe. Yes, I am very glad that I did that in 1985, so four years before the wall came down. And I saw this thing, and it uh, put a chill through me that I cannot describe in words. It was a terrifying experience, even being on the right side of the wall, the good side, the side you wanted to be on, looking over the wall at the soldiers watching you and the minefield that lay in between you and East Berlin uh, was terrifying and really chilling. And um, I like to express that to you know, people who haven't experienced um, police states um, in person, that uh, you, you can't overstate how evil and horrible living like that would be. And uh, that was a big part of the Cold War, and I think that's important to express. You know, it's interesting to me and fascinating how we all sort of have a different experience with growing up with the Cold War. In my case, personally, uh, the way I related to the Cold War was through James Bond movies growing up. 
so to me, the Cold War was Roger Moore in a clown outfit trying to def- defuse a nuclear bomb <laughs> before it went off in West Germany. A clown outfit? Which, <laughs> which film was that? That was Octopussy. Oh. 1983. No, I guess that's why I didn't see it. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, I, I also knew people who were my age who would literally cower under the covers at night thinking that this could be their last night on Earth and that it was all going to end tomorrow. So I, I think it's interesting, thinking back on that time, how sort of divergent people's feelings were in terms of the impact of what could happen. And even though we're talking about Dr. Strange Love and Failsafe today, there are quite a few well-known nuclear holocaust-related movies out there that we could easily talk about, <laughs> given if we had four hours to do it. But uh, one that jumps to my mind particularly, well, two actually, and there are actually two made-for-TV movies. The first is Day After, the early 80s. I remember that making a huge impact when it came out. A very bleak miniseries about the aftermath of a nuclear attack. And the other one was a made-for-HBO movie not too many people know about, but I think it, it's up there in terms of paranoid Cold War-style movies. It's called... Um, by Dawn's Early Light, and it follows a similar plot line to the two movies we're going to talk about in terms of there's a mistake, nuclear bombs are dropped, what are we going to do next? So on that note... On that cheery note. (laughs) Just to give a little background about the era. So both of these movies came out in 1964 uh, during the peak of Cold War tensions, I think it's fair to say. We just had the Bay of Pigs, we just had the Cuban Missile Crisis... And uh, MAD was on everybody's mind. Do you want to explain to the viewers who might not know what MAD is all about? So MAD, appropriately named, I guess, uh, stands for Mutual Assured Destruction, which was the system that the USSR and the USA developed to prevent World War III, which both sides recognized would be uh, certainly the end of both countries and both civilizations and possibly the end of life Uh, on the planet of Earth. Uh, So it was such a hideous, horrible, unthinkable um, outcome from, you know, potential whatever misunderstanding or aggression between the two rivals that it was considered unthinkable and it would never happen because, as one of the characters in Dr. Strangeup says, you know, knows it is not a position a sane man would would dream up, you know. No one would do that on purpose. So it, it... it held the peace barely uh, for decades, all through the Cold War, although there were some very near misses, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where some, I think, came out later that some Russian um, submarine captain was ordered to launch one of his nuclear-tipped torpedoes at the American ships, and he decided not to do so possibly saving the planet from extinction. Um, So there were probably many of these stories that we don't know about. Um, And and so we probably dodged many bullets uh, between the 1950s and the 1990s. And we're probably still dodging some bullets. Uh, Just uh, new hands are grasping for the triggers. And that's at the heart of both of these films. These films follow almost identical plots, which is weird. But uh, they're sort of two f- sides of the same coin of the madness of mad, of this, this system that uh, kept this balance of power um, going in the world for so many decades. And one film is heartbreaking in its realism of what could possibly have gone wrong. And the other film is heartbreakingly hilarious in <laughs> t- discussing the exact same thing but with such a twisted, dark sense of humor that you, you can't help but, you know, have your stomach opened up from laughing too hard on the couch while you watch it. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's interesting how these two films are parallel, um, and they're even shot in similar ways. They're, they're both excellent. And I wouldn't even say Dr. Strangeove is more famous, I suppose, but I wouldn't even say it's a better film than, than a Failsafe. They're both excellent films. And they have a lot of other similarities, such as the, there's a sexual undertone to the thing. So with Dr. Strangelove, it's very over-the-top and obvious. The opening credits are this lovemaking between the refueling airplane and the, and the B-52 bomber. 
Uh, it's just like a um, butterfly, you know, in, inserting its thing into the flower, and it's just with this romantic music, and it's just, oh, so sexy. <laughs> and then the ending credits are uh, this uh, also romantic kind of sweet song, which is, was famous during World War II, very uh, kind of um, emotional song to the images of a, a string of um, nuclear explosions that look like orgasms. There's no other way to put it. And that, that's exactly what I'm sure Kubrick had in mind. In Failsafe, there's this kind of strange scene at the beginning of the film uh, where there's a woman at a party with the Walter Matthau character. We'll get into him a little later. Where she's turned on by the whole concept of nuclear annihilation and it's a big thing for her. And, you know, she's young and beautiful and sexy. And it's like this whole, wow, it's so cool that everyone could die tomorrow. You know, this kind of bullshit. <laughs> um, so anyway, there's a, there's a sexual side to nuclear annihilation that both films at least touch on. You did a great job there just sort of giving a quick rundown. So just to go a little bit into the genesis of each film, Dr. Strangelove is based on a book by Peter George called Red Alert. And Failsafe is based on a book uh, called Failsafe. And if you watch both movies, it's basically an identical setup. You have rogue bombers threatening to nuke Russia. And in return, Russia's threatening to nuke the U.S. back. And that's all the setup really you need for both movies. Stanley Kubrick, who directed Dr. Strangelove, ever the master manipulator, basically engineered it so Failsafe would not get released until after Dr. Strangelove. So it came out a few months afterwards. Failsafe was actually produced by Fox, but Columbia, who produced and distributed Dr. Strangelove, got the distribution rights to Failsafe. So basic, both films basically ended up under the same company, and they were both released in 1964. And just a little historical note, uh, many people believe that these movies helped Lyndon B. Johnson defeat Barry Goldwater for, for to become president of the United States because at the time, Goldwater was running under a very sort of ultra-conservative campaign. He buttressed a lot of his remarks with some offhand rhetoric like, let's lob one into the men's room at the Kremlin, lobbing one in this case being a nuclear missile. <laughs> And uh, the slogan for Goldwater's campaign was, in your heart, you know he's right. And in return, the Democrats countered with, by joking on that by saying, in your guts, you know he's nuts. <laughs> or, in your heart, you know he might. <laughs> and he, they came out with an attack ad, and it's on YouTube. Definitely look it up if you ever get a chance. It's one of the most incredible attack ads you'll ever see in the history of politics. Uh, have you seen this one? I'm sure I know what you're talking about. The uh, Daisy the, film. Uh, yes, the, da the Daisy ad. I thought of that. I didn't know that there was th that it had an effect on the, on the election, but when I saw Failsafe, I won't say where in the film it is, but there is a, a, a very similar feeling uh, of a scene. It's done with a similar technique, optical printing, mm. uh, where they zoom in super, 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 mm. super, super tight, and it's just uh, emotionally eviscerating. It's absolutely brilliant. And uh, I wonder which came first, the ad or the film? I guess <laughs> the film. Well, actually, Failsafe probably came out about the same time, I think. Wouldn't that have been the 60... Was it 64 election, I believe? I yeah, you're right. Because or, Kennedy took office in 61, so it yeah, would have been right. taking office in 65. I wonder so. if some, maybe the same people worked on it, because it's, <laughs> it's artistically masterful. It's and, very and likely. Extremely powerful, and it, it gets me every time I see that part of um, Failsafe. And it totally reminded me of that commercial that you're talking about. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live are to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. It's a brilliant commercial. It's where art and, um, and advertising come together in the most uh, effective way. Yeah. The ironic thing about that particular ad was they only were able to run it once because the Republicans were so outraged <laughs> by the implication that <laughs> the ad was basically accusing Goldwater of being the guy who would push the button. But the problem was that the ad had such a reaction that all the news stations 
began talking about the ad. And in the process of talking about the ad, they would show the ad continuously. <laughs> so even though it officially only ran once, people saw it dozens and dozens of times leading up to that election. It's a real masterpiece yeah. of short filmmaking. Yep. So as you mentioned earlier, getting back to Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove, uh, both of them, you can say, are two sides of the same coin. It's interesting to compare them in terms of their directors, because I think both of the directors leave their particular fingerprints on each movie. Uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, but Failsafe is directed by Sidney Lumet, who's no slouch himself, responsible for a multitude of great movies, everything from 12 Angry Men, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Murder on the Orient Express. I mean, the list is just goes on and on. So even though Kubrick, obviously a genius in his own right, well-known and well-regarded, uh, Lumet was no slouch. But I think it's interesting, Lumet comes from the world of television, while Kubrick definitely comes from a very cinematic background. And I think you sort of see those two styles play out in their respective movies. In that Lumet, it's, it's very sort of economical filmmaking. It only takes place in a few sets, and the sets themselves aren't, aren't necessarily overpowering or, or grand, but he uses camera angles, he uses lighting in a very sort of economical, streamlined, straightforward way. He's all about telling the story. Whereas I think Kubrick, a little bit more flamboyant. Of course, the material is more flamboyant. Although, interestingly enough, when he first started shooting Dr. Strangelove, he meant it to be a completely straight, serious telling of the story. But as he was putting it together, he realized that humor just kept on creeping into it. So he finally made the decision to make it into a satire. The absurdity of mad and, mm -hmm. and, and the whole... Um the way the nuclear balance had developed, uh, is it's just the blackest of comedies you could come up with. Yeah. Oh, both movies are very black in their own ways, for sure. I think also in terms of their outlook, it's, it's very representative of both directors. Failsafe, very sober, very humanist, because even though these terrible things are happening, you get the sense that people on both sides are trying to do the right thing. So it's a very sort of humanist take, I think, on the subject. Whereas in Strangelove, it's, since it's more of a comedy and a satire, it's, it's more about the follies of humankind. So all the characters are buffoons or just nuts or just totally ineffectual. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that comes more from Kubrick's background basically living and working in England. I think he does have a lot of the English ethos in his work in terms of the very spiky, satirical, sarcastic look at life, more cynical and jaded, I would say. That's although, a very interesting point. <laughs> although it's interesting that in both movies, you, you basically have well-meaning world leaders. I guess you don't really see that anymore <laughs> in real life. <laughs> well, hopefully we will again soon. <laughs> um, you're right, though. Um, as, fun, as hilarious uh, as Peter Sellers is as the as, uh, president Merkin Mer Mer Muffley, um, and he does a fabulous job as a, a um, uh, ad-libbing his lines. He's just riffing as being this um, not really buffoonish. I mean, he's not unintelligent, but he's in the, put in this ridiculous position of trying to placate a drunken um, Soviet premier, premier Kissoff, get premier Kissoff on the phone. You know, and then he just goes off on, and, and I guess Kubrick would do like a hundred takes and let Peter Sellers just run wild and do whatever he wanted, say whatever he wanted. And you see in the background some actors barely holding it together because he's so funny. And then Kubrick would just pick the one he liked best. And uh, so it's it's brilliant. But, um, you know, then on the other side, there's um, Henry Fonda is an inc I mean, he's so good in this as the president in this serious film, Failsafe. Mm -hmm. He's so moving and so genuine. It's, it's a brilliant performance. I don't think I've seen him perform better than in any other film than this. I mean, he's just exquisite, as is the whole film, but um, he's so powerful and so genuine and so human, humanistic, and he's looking out for the people and trying to save as many people as possible from nuclear Armageddon. Um, it's really powerful, and the way it's lit and shot and everything, um, it's just a, it's a spectacularly good film. It's ironic and odd that it's uh, Failsafe is so much less known than um, Doctor Strangelove, but they're both, uh, in my opinion, equally great films. I have to say it was my first time watching Failsafe. I watched it recently for this podcast, and I was I was pretty blown away by it. I mean, I think 
in terms of the economy of the storytelling, the performances, just the way it's paced and how it all plays out, it feels very modern to me. It definitely doesn't feel dated at all. One thing I did notice about it, which I think does happen in a lot of movies from earlier Hollywood is its strange mix of stoicism and hysteria <laughs> where the characters for the most part are very sort of stoic in their affect and the way they relate to each other but then you'll have moments where characters just completely fly off the handle and then it becomes ultra theatrical but I, f I find that strangely refreshing compared to a lot of acting we see in movies nowadays where everybody wears their emotions so close to the surface all the time and everybody's always so angst-ridden and melodramatic in a strange way, I find it more convincing for this kind of story where you see the characters having to go through these horrible decisions, but they're trying to keep that professional stone face going the entire time. So when it does crack, I think it makes that much more of an impact. Well, I, I think that's more realistic in human nature anyway, even, even today that, than the alternative of constantly look like, looking like you're cracking all the time. Mm. I mean, part of it is, I think, cultural. There's been a shift away from stoicism in general, but um, I think most people are more stoic than a lot of Hollywood, you know, impatient Hollywood pacing uh, requires people to be, you know, or actors to be, I suppose. I should also mention in Failsafe, there's a lot of well-known actors in this uh, playing roles that are a little unusual for them. You have Dom DeLuise playing it absolutely straight in a bit part. Which, who, which one? <laughs> uh, he's, he's almost unrecognizable, but the, the part where Colonel Cassio is relieved from duty mm -hmm. and the general is asking, you know, how do we blow up our planes to reveal this information to the Russians? And he calls in the sergeant, and the sergeant has to explain on the comm. That's Dom DeLuise. Do of indicated missiles have both infrared and radar-seeking capacity? Yes, sir. Loud and clear, they got to know we're on the level. It, it, it has both capacities, sir. It can be overloaded by, by increasing the power output and, and sliding through radar frequencies as fast as possible. What happens is the firing mechanism reads the higher amperage as proximity to the target and detonates the warhead. Larry Hagman, obviously known for I Dream of Genie, and... Uh, he was great in this. He's so young, but he's really powerful. He's, yeah. he, he and... Um, Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda, thank you. Uh, I think they play off each other really well, really effectively. And there's, there's an example of less is more, because there's, there's a central scene in the middle of the movie where it's basically just him and Henry Fonda, both on the hotline to Russia... Larry Hagman is translating what's being said over the phone while Henry Fonda is responding to that. There's no fancy camera tricks. It's just a straight shot of the two of them for six or seven minutes, but that's all you need because you can just feel the tension rising through the performance and the script. Yeah, it's excellent filmmaking on every level, and uh, that's a great example of it, that just let it play and let um, the performances play and the script and the, and the situation is so gripping that you don't need cuts you don't need dollies you don't need this or that you just need good actors and a great script yeah and just to give out a shout out to some of the other great actors involved in this um general black who you could say is one of the leads in this movie is played by dan o'herlihy who's probably best known to my generation as the head of the corporation from robocop but he's also the sidekick pilot in The Last Starfighter. <laughs> but obviously, he had a much more distinguished career, both in film and theater, before that point, and he, he turns in a great job in this movie. And I also want to give kudos to Frank Overton, who plays the general at NORAD, General Bogdan. Um, probably not known to most audiences. He's most well-known for playing the sheriff in To Kill a Mockingbird, and also in the famous Star Trek episode, This Side of Paradise. <laughs> But speaking of characters, you, you wanted to mention Walter Matthau's character in Failsafe. Yes. So Walter Matthau is a political scient plays a political scientist. And he starts the film with his expounding on his philosophy of winnable nuclear war, winnable hydrogen bombs. Uh, you could destroy the enemy and only suffer 60 to 100 million dead would be an acceptable number uh, with the um, promise of annihilating the communist culture of the Soviet Union 
and it would be worth it, and it's doable, and we should consider it, uh, uh, you know. And this was a serious conversation that was being had in in the 50s and early 60s, that people were actually considering this, you know. In this Dr. Strangelove, the version is George C. Scott saying, Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. So Walter Matthau is, you know, he's more um, canny. He's, and I like to, his character is, is this despicable man who is a know-it-all. He's the political scientist, but he's been hired by the Pentagon to give them advice. But he completely reminds me of Paul Wolfowitz, who's one of the neocons who got us into invading a sovereign nation called Iraq in the 90s. Uh, who helped Dick Cheney and others um, with their nefarious plans to try and conquer the Middle East for their oil and their wealth and whatever else we can get out of them. And this greasy gargoyle named Paul Wolfowitz, it looks so much like the Walter Matthau <laughs> character in this film. And, this, and the, the mentality is similar too. It's our culture is superior, therefore we have the right and in fact almost the obligation to invade or destroy these people. 60 to 100 million dead, it's worth it. You know, that's Walter Matthau. Do you believe that communism is not our mortal enemy? You're justifying murder. Yes. To keep from being murdered in the name of what? To preserve what? Even if we do survive, what are we? Better than what we say they are? What gives us the right to live then? What makes us worth surviving, Grotichella, that we are ruthless enough to strike first? Yes! Those who can survive are the only ones worth surviving. I, I, I picture Wolfowitz at home alone in bed, having watched Fail Safe on VHS and thinking, I want to be that guy. <laughs> I'm getting out of college soon, and I, that's what I want to be. Because look, he's almost got the chick. You know, <laughs> and look at the power he wields over all these generals. Anyway. Although it's interesting you mentioned that because even though he's sort of butting heads with the generals at every turn and fail safe, it doesn't seem like they ever take his suggestions completely seriously. It's like they listen to him, they say, okay, that's your opinion, and then they just sort of roll right on and do what they think is right. I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I think they're, they're of two minds, because there are some generals that are like, yeah, maybe that's the way to go. And then there's General Black, you know, the hero, who's like, this is insane. You know, what are you thinking? Uh, what are you all thinking? We're going too fast. We're, this, you know, the missiles are too quick. We don't have time to change our minds. You know, it, everything's getting automated, and this, is, this could lead to disaster. And Walter Matthau's like, great, if it leads to disaster, we'll just go all in and bomb the shit out of them and win the war, you know, and, you know, they have to be reminded that um, a preemptive nuclear strike is against American policy, which also comes up verbatim, practically, in Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in my researches, I found that Walter Matthau's character was somewhat based on this man named Herman Kahn, who apparently created the theory of nuclear strategy of acceptable losses and millions of deaths, that sort of thing. Right. But I don't think he was entirely accepted by the military men as well as civilians. Sure. Um, but I'm sure there are plenty of hawks who, who would be like, you know, only good commies a dead commie, better dead than red, blah, 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 you know. Just I think if you look throughout history, you'll find your share of uh, hysterical hawks, shall we say. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's the Paul Wolfowitzes and the Walter Matthau's characters, not Walter himself, uh, who are the ones who are so blithe and, and um, easy to say, oh, well, the numbers say this and the numbers say that, and Halliburton will make this much profit if, if we invade this country and we'll get this much amount of oil out of it. And, you know, who cares about, you know, John Doe, the soldier, the, the Marine, the Special Forces guy? He's there to make me money, you know? I mean, they would never say that. But that's the end result. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more of a straight profit motive in it these days, I suppose. Yeah, it's more ideological. More then. ideological in these particular right movies, I would say. Sure. Well, let's talk about The Matador a little bit in Failsafe. Um, quite a striking opening to the film. 
very intense, very unexpected. Opening is a dream sequence um, of a, a series of bullfighting uh, footage, stock footage, and the, the general black wakes up from this nightmare that he, a recurring nightmare, where he he's the matador, and um, it's very disturbing, and it's sort of this mysterious opening to the film. We don't get a resolution until the end of the very end of the film, then we understand what that's about. It's interesting, too, because the, the opening scenes of the film, it's very documentary style, where they say, you know, Washington, D.C., 5.30 a.m., and the very first shot of the movie is New York, 5.30 a.m., but you see the Spanish bullfighting ring. <laughs> it's a, it definitely throws you off balance, I think, going into the movie, which is, which is a good thing. Well, I think it's, uh, it shows the um, filmmaker's uh, confidence and, and creativity that he, was, um, he wasn't worried about going out on many limbs creatively, uh, including that scene and then the very end with the, the daisy the Daisy uh, commercial reference or technique, I should mm -hmm. say. Um, you know, he was willing to do some avant-garde stuff. Mm -hmm. And sh even shooting in black and white in 1964 is not, you know, that's not necessarily a mainstream idea. That's, that's still kind of a um, little, little edgy. It's maybe be more edgy 10 years later. But, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of edgy techniques and filmmaking um, decisions in in um, Failsafe, mm. which deserve credit, mm -hmm. in my opinion, yeah. because they work. <laughs> but the end of Failsafe uh, is about as bleak as it gets. It basically concludes with... You sure you want to say? <laughs> you sure you want to say? <laughs> well, let's just say there's some nuclear annihilation involved. Uh, we don't have to... Uh, that's, a good, that's a good way. We don't, we don't have to get into specifics about it. But it does bring up the question, does Henry Fonda get reelected after what happens in this movie? <laughs> I thought about that. I thought that he would probably resign mm. in the middle of his term and just go into hiding or commit suicide. Mm. Because what else could you possibly do? You could give a really, really powerful speech and say, "Sorry, that's it." Mm -hmm. You know. But that was—that's how I pictured it. Yeah, I think it's interesting comparing this to Doctor Strangelove in that, at least in this, even though there's total catastrophe there is sort of a niggling hope that things might get better at some point in the future that we as humans can somehow figure out a way to get over these impulses and not put our lives um, at the control of all these machines and processes that we really don't have much control over whereas Dr. Strangelove sort of goes for a complete cataclysm on the other hand and sort of it's a sort of a ha-ha moment at the end of that movie where it's like, ah, you guys, we are, we're all screwed. <laughs> and it's just ridiculous and it's crazy and this is just how it is and it's kind of funny. But we're not all screwed because the people in the war room are going to be the only ones to survive. <laughs> in fact, Dr. Strangelove has a marvelous idea about that, how they could live in the mine chest for, for you know, 100 years with the nuclear power plants to provide energy almost indefinitely and plants could be grown and... Animals could be bred and slaughtered. <laughs> but uh, with the proper breeding techniques and the ratio of, say, 10 females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product within, say, 20 years. You mentioned the uh, ratio of uh, 10 women to each man. Uh, uh, wouldn't that necessitate the abandonment of the so-called uh, monogamous sexual relationship, I mean, as far as men were concerned? Uh, regrettably, yes. But it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. Oh, my doctor, I, I think you have struck on a wonderful idea there. <laughs> yes, I, I do like this idea. So it's not entirely bleak in Dr. Strangelove. It's, uh, uh, as long as you're among the hundred 50,000 people or 100 people who are allowed to go into the mine shafts to procreate with all these beautiful young secretaries that they would yeah. drag down there with them. And then it'd be just, uh, you know, kind of heavenly, except very dark, and uh, yeah. you'd never see the sun. <laughs> I suppose bleak in the sense that even though there, there might be a chance for the human race to survive, that the human race is basically now in the hands of complete lunatics. <laughs> just 
lunatics or complete assholes or both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but getting further into uh, Dr. Strangelove here. So you've already mentioned sort of the sexual fixation in the movie. Clearly, there's a lot of Freudian oral fixation going on with all the cigars, cigarettes, and chewing gum that people are chomping on throughout the movie. <laughs> I didn't really think so much about that, but I guess, I guess you're right. There's, and the secretary at the beginning is hilarious. Bucky, the phone's ringing. Ah, that's interesting you mentioned that, because Stanley Kubrick had a comment in relation to this film. He said, confront a man in his office with a nuclear alarm and you have a documentary. If the news reaches him in his living room, you have a drama. If it catches him in a lavatory, you have a comedy. And well, there you go, because <laughs> that's where it catches him. Uh, this character we're talking about is George C. Scott, who plays General Man- uh, Turgidson, Turgidson. Buck Turgidson, uh, who's one of the Pentagon War Room officials. And it's an incredible performance by George C. Scott, which was actually drawn out of him using some trickery by Kubrick. Have you heard about this? Uh, Scott w- w- wanted it to wanted to play it more straight, and uh, Kubrick kept kind of pushing him to just do one more take, just a little more comedic. And um, I guess uh, you know, and then he would pick uh, inevitably uh, the most comedic version, um, not necessarily to George C. Scott's liking that he was kind of mad about it, that he felt manipulated into giving a more buffoonish uh, characterization than he, than he wanted, that he wanted to do, because he was a big star at that point, and I think he had a big ego, but he let Kubrick kind of push him around a bit, partly because he, Kubrick was better than him at chess. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's and, true. And Scott was a big chess fan, and Kubrick was like a chess master. and So, so he would settle arguments by playing chess. Right? <laughs> yep. yeah, the way... The way gentlemen and kings used to, <laughs> but I think uh, Scott was not thrilled about his his the way he was presented in the film because he is the most buffoonish character really in the whole film. Yeah, apparently um, he was so put off by the footage that Kubrick ended up using of him that he vowed never to work with him again. <laughs> hmm. Although later in his career, apparently he came around and he he recognized you know what Stanley did was good for the movie. So it's hard to know without seeing the other takes because he would do a hundred takes, you know, and it, maybe there were some that were more subtle that were better. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, the way I heard the story was that Kubrick would sort of give the impression that these were just sort of practice takes, right. warm up, takes. and just just mug it up. Doesn't matter. We're just right. warming up here, and he would end up using those takes in the actual movie. In my opinion, I think a lot of uh, George C. Scott's. Um, scenes are overdone uh, compared with the other performances in the film. Um, it, it, I kind of agree with that, that, <laughs> that they're, they're, they are a little more over the top than other characters in the film. And it, it seems like to me it might have been better to have them more consistent with Peter Sellers' takes and, you know, um, uh, Sterling Hayden as General Jack D. Ripper, you know, <laughs> who plays it very straight, but with these crazy lines that just chill you to the bone, you know, that, that he doesn't need to be buffoonish because the lines are just like, what? You know. Well, also the way it's filmed, and this, this, is, this is sort of part of Kubrick's genius in terms of sort of integrating script with the filmmaking, where you, where you have the scenes where Jack D. Ripper, who basically incites the nuclear holocaust in the movie, by going insane and ordering a strike on Russia. He's basically trapped in a room with one of the characters Peter Sellers plays, um, and he's trying to explain why he's doing this. And the way Kubrick films it, anytime Peter Sellers is talking or they're just sort of sitting there in the room, it's a very simple two-shot. But then every time Jack D. Ripper starts to explain why he's doing what he's doing, and I know you have some great quotes about it that you should give to the audience in a second here, but the way... Kubrick films him just a little bit underneath him, looking up at him. He's sort of looming over us. It's like his insanity is just looming large at that moment. It's just really simple but brilliant filmmaking. Yeah, I agree. The light is this. There's this very harsh light on his face, and it's shot. I think from a big chunk of it shot from very low. Mm -hmm. I I think he must have had him on a platform. It's too low for. It's not even the floor. It's below the floor shot up on his face and he's chopping on his cigar and he's, you know, he's giving this dialogue, you know, like I, you know, it's, I've sent the bombers. It's too late to call them back. You know, we're going to destroy Russia and that's the way it is, you know, chomp, chomp, chomp. 
And then um, Peter Sellers is this kind of mousy RAF exchange officer. He's like an exchange student, you know, and he's trying to figure out, like, he realizes that, you know, the American general has gone insane and is starting World War III. Um, and it's it's quite hilarious. But you're right. Um, Sellers' character is mousy and shot mostly from above, and then Sterling Hayden is shot mostly from below and is chomping on this cigar just like a a really tough looking soldier, you know, and then, um, <laughs> they just, then there's this fabulous ad libbing that, that Peter Sellers is able to pull off and Sterling Hayden is right there with him. Uh, he's so good in this. I think it's the best film I've seen him in. Um, he was in stuff like, uh, what was Johnny guitar oh, and yeah. an old Western mm-hmm. and, you know, he's in a ton of stuff. The killing an earlier Kubrick film the killing. Okay. And, um, Nine to five, he was a small role. In it. Anyway, um, <laughs> he was a great actor, but um, you know he goes on this this um, rant about why he's done this and 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 you know how uh, basically talking about eugenics and how our bodily fluids. This is probably the most famous lines of the film. Tell me, Jack, when did you first become well develop this theory? Well, I. Uh... I, I first became aware of it, Mandrake, during the physical act of love. Huh. Yes, a, a profound sense of fatigue, a feeling of emptiness followed. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. Loss of essence. Yeah. I can assure you it has not recurred, Mandrake. Women, uh, women sense my power. They seek the life essence. I do not avoid women, Mandrake. Yeah. But I, I do deny them my essence. Yes. <laughs> it's just like you just—you're cringing, you're laughing, you're just like—and yet it's all about nuclear annihilation. You know, it's, that's Kubrick's genius: is how he can just tor- tear you in two opposite most opposite directions at once and so brilliantly and and peter sellers himself you know this this crazy three-parted uh role that he plays it's interesting you know as you say he plays three parts so he plays the exchange ref commander he plays the president of the united states and he plays dr strangelove former nazi scientist and now advisor on the national security council what did you make of his portrayal of Dr. Strangelove because I have to be honest the first time I saw this movie back way back when the character sort of seemed a little bit jarring to me compared to all the other characters like the other characters were definitely playing it broadly kind of way where his Dr. Strangelove is just completely from a different planet (laughs) Um, well I I think he's drawing on you know real history of the post-World War II period where the Americans and the Russians, the Soviets, were in a race to capture as many of the German scientists as they could for their own uses. So the Germans were miles ahead of the, both countries in rocket development, rocketry. They were they almost had the nuclear or the atomic bomb. Um, you know, they were probably months away from it. Uh, who knows? But um, so there was this mad race to capture all these scientists who were diabolical and the the things that they were trying to do. A lot of them believed in this eugenics nonsense, and a lot of them were just, you know, scientists who just really liked to make big rockets that could fly from the first intercontinental ballistic missile Mm -hmm. is the V-2 rocket that the Germans shot at London and killed thousands of people of, you know, civilians. Um, So they wanted these guys for their knowledge, and they got them, you know, they split them up, they captured as many as they could, and the U.S. probably got most of the good ones. But this guy's, this character is based directly on, um, you know, a, amalgamation, but maybe one in particular, Werner von Braun, um, <laughs> you know, based on these real people and um, probably just taking it one or two steps further in, 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 in their, you know, scariness. Because here are these people who, you know, went about their business of designing these bombs that could shoot from Holland to London and destroy innocent people 
you know, as much as they wanted and then go home to their wives and their fraus and their children and, you know, have a nice meal and go to bed and get up the next day and do it again. Mm. Um, so I think he's as bizarre and extreme as his character is in the film. That's, I think he's taking it from a real place and then just extrapolating on it. You know, there's this, this weird edge to him that is... Um, I think drawn from, you know, watching the Nuremberg trials or who mm. knows what Peter Sellers was studying, but I don't think it's that far other than the hand that's yeah. totally, you know, on another plane. Yeah. I think it's telling that in a movie that has a lot of metaphors for sexual potency, that it basically concludes with a character called Dr. Strange Love getting turned on by the the idea of imminent nuclear annihilation that he's able to rise from his wheelchair and walk again. <laughs> That's sort of like the grand finale just before the big explosions at the end. Right. He's, his manhood has been re, uh, resumed by, by the end of the world <laughs> above ground anyway. Apparently the movie was supposed to end on a pie fight. Did you know that? Yes. A, yeah, it sounds terrible. It's, it sounds <laughs> like a good idea they cut that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when you have your film ending on complete nuclear Armageddon, the pie fight does seem kind of minor in comparison. Yeah, <laughs> and it and then it ends with the closing credits, of, or even before the close. There are no closing credits. I think it's just this, we'll meet again, this famous song that's very pretty, mm-hmm. and all these beautiful mushroom clouds of Bikini Atoll being evaporated, and then the desert in Nevada being turned to glass, the sand being turned to glass, and one after another of these orgasmic mushroom clouds to this romantic song, you know, it's like, ah. I mean, that's as fucked up as it gets. (laughs) But the film definitely has some some pretty cutting commentary about the military-industrial complex in general. Um, I think the mo- one moment that stands out for me is Peter Sellers is trying to make a phone call to try to avert <laughs> nuclear disaster, and he doesn't have change. And there's another soldier with him, Colonel Bat Guano, played by Keenan Wynn. If that really is your name. <laughs> and he orders the colonel to shoot out this Coca-Cola machine to get changed so he can make this potentially world-saving phone call. And the colonel is all like, Okay, I mean, you can do that if you want, but just so you know, you might have to pay Coca-Cola for damage to this vending machine. You'll have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. Yeah. (laughs) That's like the ultimate threat, right? (laughs) So even back then, uh, definitely an awareness on Kubrick's part about how capitalism and the military-industrial complex are all kind of working hand-in-hand together, which I find interesting. I think looking at Kubrick's career in general, looking at this film... It's a very interesting midpoint. So many little touches and themes that you can see from his previous movies, but he also carries over to his future movies, like the idea of computers running everything. Obviously, it leads to the HAL 9000 in his very next movie, 2001. Um, sort of the, the senselessness of war in general. We had that in Path of the Glory, and we get it again in Full Metal Jacket. It's interesting that this... And I also think this is the movie that sort of set him on his course of staying in London for the rest of his career, where he shot pretty much all of his remaining movies. And uh, he certainly uses some very well-known names uh, behind the scenes in this movie. Ken Adam, who designed quite a few of the James Bond movies, does the production design for this movie. He created that very striking Pentagon emergency war room set. Uh, the cinematographer is actually Gil Taylor, who did A Hard Day's Night and later would go on to do a little film called Star Wars. So definitely making the most of the best talent in British film at the time, which is a pattern that he would basically follow for the rest of his career, I, I think. Interesting. And, you know, and the failsafe was shot all in New York City yes. instead of Hollywood. So that's a similar, uh, you know, uh, dynamic of staying out of the big studio machine, which would just chew you up and tell you what to do and um, work with, you know, great actors, theater actors, stage actors, as well as film actors with a much smaller budget in a a city away from that wasn't Los Angeles. Uh, So maybe a similar. 
And the other dynamic. similar thing about these two movies, as different as they are tonally, is I think they're very obsessed with getting the details right about these potential situations. Yes, the the whole interior of the jets, um, especially the B-52. So in neither filmmakers got any help whatsoever uh, from the military when they asked for footage or, or f- stock photography uh, of the airplanes that were going to be in the film or any plans for their controllers or anything. They were completely stonewalled by the Pentagon because the Pentagon was probably rightfully uh, paranoid about what these um, independent filmmakers were going to say about the military-industrial complex. So they had to scrounge and scratch all the way from zero. And in the case of Kubrick, he came up with an interior of the B-52 bombers through public sources, you know, like uh, uh, that the military was so shocked at how accurate it was that they they were, he was worried that they were going to drag him off to jail <laughs> until he had to prove to them the open sources that he got the information from, the images of what the switches look like and the control panels and what the interior of that plane actually looks like. And then they had to let him off the hook. And similarly in, um, in uh, uh, the other film, that the the military would give them no footage of the of the planes they wanted to use, not even stock footage. So even stock footage houses were forbidden to sell them or rent them um, footage of the bombers that were flying around every day, you know, over the United States and over Alaska. Um, so there was no help whatsoever. So they had to do it all on their own, and um, it must have been tough. But it's interesting that the government knew that they were, you know that they were, um, had, had some dogs barking up their tree that they didn't want around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that attention to detail in both films shows. I mean, even, even though one film is completely humorous and parodic, you still have that verisimilitude going with the actual process uh, of the long scenes of the bomber infiltrating Soviet territory and the crew working together to make sure this bomb run happens in a very professional manner. Even King Kong, played by Slim Pickens, the captain of the uh, B-52 bomber, who apparently was told that this was a serious movie <laughs> when he signed up for it. This thing turns out to be half as important as I figured it just might be. I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Acting like soldiers, like 22-year-old soldiers, you know, just doing their job and following. As you say, the, the um, attention to detail is extreme, and it's not funny. It shows how they have to open up their, you know, they, they know they're going into enemy territory, so they have to open up their packages of their emergency supplies. They go through a <laughs> list of the supplies, you know. 145 caliber automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug issue containing antibiotics, morphine, vitamin pills, pep pills, sleeping pills, tranquilizer pills, one miniature combination Russian phrase book and Bible. $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pair of nylon stockings. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. So this movie was supposed to be released in 1963, but after the assassination of JFK in Dallas, they pushed back the release date. And they changed that line. And actually, the line was, a fellow could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with this stuff, and they had to change it to Vegas. Right. <laughs> and they did a good job on that that little dubbing, because it's not noticeable. It's very clever. <laughs> Propylactics. Uh, you know, this goes on and on, this list of, of fun stuff you could have in good time in Vegas. <laughs> oh, uh, just addressing an earlier point, you mentioned how that you have that sort of funny opening to Dr. Strangelove where you have two planes basically coupling, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The song that's actually playing underneath that is called Try a Little Tenderness. <laughs> You've done your research well. <laughs> so, both films, I think, 
should be recognized as classics, even though one might not get as much attention as the other one. I totally agree. Interestingly enough, Failsafe was actually the one of the two movies that got remade as a 2000 made-for-TV movie where they actually filmed it live. So it's a live performance starring George Clooney, Richard Dreyfuss is the president. Somehow I can't imagine him being as presidential as Henry Fonda was. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or Peter Sellers. <laughs> Merkin Muffley. <laughs> and Harvey Keitel played General Black in the 2000 version. I haven't seen it myself. I read feed reviews. It sounded a bit stilted compared to the original. And I think that's to be expected with a live performance. I could totally see it as a play. I mean, it's because it's only in two or three locations. You know, you could... You could make it into a, a, a theater performance, I think. But the film as a film is excellent in a film way. Yeah. And actually, speaking of theater performance, there was a staged reading of Dr. Strangelove a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, with Patrick Stewart as Dr. Strangelove. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I think Shia LaBeouf was in it as well. I, I, I remember reading about it. I forget which character he played. But, it, you know, it was a pretty starry cast. And it was one of those Hollywood things they do you know, occasionally where they have a staged reading of a film and they just line up all these actors on chairs and they just go through the entire script. That's cool. Yeah. I, like, I like that they try to do that once in a while. Dimitri, Dimitri, <laughs> don't get hysterical. <laughs> Any final thoughts on either of these films? Bat Guano. That's all I got to say. Bat Guano. So is that your favorite character name from Dr. Strangelove? <laughs> Among the many humorous character names? I would say that I didn't know the meaning of the word Merkin until, <laughs> uh, until someone told me what that means. And it's worth looking up because <laughs> his character is bald and that it makes it even funnier. Um, Jack D. Ripper is perhaps a little obvious, but uh, Bat Guano is pretty good. And, of course, Premier Kiss-Off, you can't do better than that. <laughs> I mean, Russian names, of course, you know, lend themselves to... General Jerkoff, <laughs> you know, it lends themselves to American humor, much to their <laughs> chagrin, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're, it's just, uh, it's such a great film. They're both such great films. That's that's the mm, kind of the sad part of the of the this tale is that um, Failsafe just, I mean, it's hardly known, you know, and everybody knows Doctor Strangelove, and they're both both should be seen because they're both extremely good. Yeah, I think it's very rare. You see it a lot in Hollywood history where, for whatever reason, some people are drinking the same water or whatever, but two films on the same subject come out within a short period from each other. And that's happened a few times in history. Um, more recent examples would probably include, um, like in 1997, I think there were two volcano movies, <laughs> two volcano disaster movies that ended up coming out within months of each other. <laughs> but I think this is one of those rare cases where two movies on the same theme and very similar stories came out, and they're both really good. Yeah, usually one is better than the other, or one is terrible. And or they're both terrible. <laughs> or they're both terrible, but these are both really classics mm -hmm. in every way. Yeah. I don't think we're done with the Cold War by any means. I, don't, I think we've got the new Cold War. <laughs> it's been refreshed. Oh, I meant talking about movie-wise. Oh, <laughs> I, I meant the news, but both. Yeah, let's... Well, I, I mean, I, I'm a, kind of addicted to, uh, you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the Alec Guinness version, and uh, Smiley's People, the sequel to that. Those are sure. just two fabulous... Oh, uh, there's plenty of Cold War movies and TV shows we could get into. Obviously, yeah. John LeCar is up there, but we also have Sandbaggers. The sandbaggers, I was going to say. You turned me on to that. That was great until it ended. <laughs> mysteriously, under <laughs> dark, mysterious circumstances. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get around to that in a future podcast. But, Great. You know, plenty, plenty of movies and shows to talk about in the future. Good. We'll just have to watch our backs when we leave the studio here. Make <laughs> sure no one's following us. Yeah. Right. Well, Peter, we'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. <laughs> how's, how's that song end? <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye. That sounds like Sound of Music. But yeah. Well, my pleasure look forward to it yeah. and thanks to you out there for listening to this podcast uh, once again you can find this podcast on apple podcasts or you can go to my film review site camera roll that's camera-roll.com to find this and other film commentary until next time this is holin signing off thanks again to peter make peace and we'll catch you next time
Sunny day.